Hello, this is Frank Graham, and I'm the host, guest host at Coffee and Poets, number 22, produced by NSA at the Naked Lounge, 11th and H in Sacramento. And I'm so happy to be here today with Sacramento's Poet Laureate, Jeff Knorr. He is the current Poet Laureate for the city and county of Sacramento. And Jeff is the author of three collections of poetry, The Third Body, Standing Up to the Day, and Keeper, which is a collection of poems and essays. His other works include the co-authored Morning Against the Tide, Writing Poetry and Fiction by Prentice Hall, the anthology A Writer's Country by Prentice Hall, and the newly released The River Sings, an introduction to poetry by Prentice Hall as well. His poetry and essays have appeared in numerous literary journals and anthologies, including Barrow Street, Chelsea, Connecticut Review, Red Rock Review, The Journal, and Like Thunder, Poets Respond to Violence in America. He was the 2008 winner of the Ray Bradbury Award in Poetry and in 2009 finished third in the James Hurst Prize from the North American Review. Jeff has edited, presented, and been an invited judge for various awards. He was the founding co-editor and poetry editor of Clackamas Literary Review, which won Best New Magazine in America in 97 and 98. He's also been an invited reader at uh, numerous venues, uh, such as University of Pennsylvania's Kelly Writers House, the Des Moines Festival of Literary Arts, and a judge for contests, too, such as the Willamette Award in Poetry, the Red Rock Poetry Award, and CNR Press's De Novo First Book Contest. He's been the chair of the English department at Sac City College, and has served on the Sacramento County Office of Education Arts Executive Advisory Board. Jeff still lives in California's Central Valley and is professor of English at Sacramento City College. So let's welcome Jeff Knorr. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming out, all the guests, and thanks for having me, Frank. Well, this is a super exciting time to, to get to talk with the Poet Laureate and go through some of his poems and and what his life is like. So before we get too into it, I want to mention a couple of events uh, in the near future. I know this won't be broadcast for a while, but um, I want to remind you that NSIA also hosts a reading at Mahogany on third Wednesdays and third Thursdays at the library with Mary Zeppa. Uh, he has events going on. So we're very thankful to NSIA for hosting, or pardon me, for producing the program and making this available to us. So Jeff, if you will, I think maybe we'll just go straight into a poem. Sure. And I think you had uh, the Christmas event. Yeah, we can start with that. Christmas right. and the love you never saw coming. Yeah, I'll start with that poem. And you know, um, I suppose this is a, an interesting one to begin with in the sense that uh, this poem came uh, in a little different way maybe than, than many poems that I write do come to me. And uh, a number of years ago, I was at an interfaith service on Christmas Eve at the uh, Presbyterian Church downtown. Uh, they were doing this kind of large procession. The imam from the mosque here in Sacramento was there reading some passages from the Quran. Uh, the minister from uh, Westminster Presbyterian was reading passages from the Bible. There was this procession into the uh, church. And it was really quite a, quite a wonderful uh, evening. 
And I really kind of because it was such a nice evening, my mind started wandering about the whole myth of uh-huh. Christmas. And, and I don't mean that in any disrespectful way, calling it a myth, but the story mm. uh, that we engage in around uh, the Christmas story and all of these, uh, these really wonderful stories and tales that make up the body of world religion. And I thought to myself, you know, what would it be like if you were in one of these, but had no idea you really were in one? And of course, you'd never know if you were really in one or not. <laughs> uh, and, you know, years later, somebody would write about it. And it made me uh, think about resetting the Christmas story in a kind of contemporary way. Uh, and I thought that I would try that in a poem, uh, hence Christmas and the love you never saw coming. One morning you wake up and you're a sheep herder in Wyoming. No tunic or classic staff, but wranglers, old worn-in Justin Ropers, a few Pendleton shirts, a felt Stetson riding low and tight, a metal two-wheeled trailer. Just say this happens. Your days from any town and on the ridge at dusk, you go out to check the sheep. The dog comes to you, not urgent, but attentive. The sheep are bunched down the draw under the lone pine for shelter. The clouds and night are closing on you like knuckles of a fist. Things are in order, so you retreat to the trailer. The dog stops halfway back knowing the difference between your lives. Inside is coffee, the smell of bacon fat, and the steady hiss of beans cooking on the butane stove. There's a knock, and a guy you've never seen before but could be another shepherd walks in like he's in a Denny's restaurant. He says, sorry for the interruption, but I have news for you. (laughs) Back in town in Crawford, a young woman is waiting to be yours. She may have a child. Her name is Maria, and you'll find her at 268 First Avenue. You don't know what he's talking about, and he leans for a moment against the Formica counter. Then he goes the way dry leaves or papers blow in the wind. The trailer thumps a bit in the gusts. You recover and go outside. The dog is huddled under the trailer like a sack of old clothes, and the guy is gone, long gone, just boot prints for ten yards or so. Say this happens. Then what? I mean, you're chosen, and you know that this is God and will be love, and it's beyond you. You'll go to First Avenue in Crawford the minute you're back, shaved and with a new shirt, and she'll be there, though you're not sure what will happen. But right there under the rising moon, with the sheep bleating down the draw, you know this magic is sure as the snow that's coming, solid as the ground you stand on, steady as the wind whipping your bones, making your body feel like a flute. Fascinating. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. The first thing I noticed, I mean, you, you gave us a little background. I appreciate that. But I'm, I'm just really curious about the imagination, the imaginative process that happens. You said you were prompted by or triggered by the uh, experience of a, a multicultural sort of inclusive religion, religious or spiritual experience. But where do you go from that? I mean, um Yet, you know, this poem was was fun to write in that way because I felt um, I, I felt so imaginatively free in this. I, and that might sound counterintuitive, right? Because here I am playing with uh, with a story that people know and know the background of and, you know, the 
this uh, sort of immaculate birth and and uh, you know two people coming on with the burrow and coming into town looking for rest for the night and everything. So people people know this story, but I thought to myself, uh, in in reframing it and imagining it as a new story, uh, where could I set it? And so I I felt entirely free, and I suppose I I. I really did hark back to Richard Hugo's Triggering Town essay. You know, in, in the Triggering Town essay, he talks about the notion of the physical, the, sort of the physical details in a poem. You really are free to do with whatever you want with those. If you need to fictionalize things, go ahead and fictionalize them. But you owe everything to the emotional truth of the poem. So I realized that there was a certain core of the story I needed to stay with. And that was about, about miracles. And that was about being chosen. And that was about feeling the power of something some, beyond you yeah. coming There's something in. about certainty in it too, right? About he knows that this is going to happen. Yeah, right. right? There's no <laughs> question, right? There's no question that yeah. when this person walks into the trailer who disappears quite quickly, uh, when that person delivers the news that there's this woman who's going to have this child and it's mm -hmm. supposed to be this guy's child, there's no question that that's going to happen. He's going to show up at First Avenue shaved and with a new shirt, right? Uh, you know, it was that kind of detail that I really loved playing with the notion that this guy, okay, so he's on a, he's on his his little herding, uh, you know, his little herding job here, but he's got to go back and he's got to clean up and and go meet this woman. So, is there any other background, any basis in fact? I mean, had you experienced some situation where you happened to be out on the range in Wyoming or you knew of someone who had, uh, who had been? No, I'm not, I'm not friends with anybody who's herded in okay. Wyoming. Um, I, I know people, uh, I have friends in Oregon uh, who are cattle ranchers uh, and, okay. and have done some herding with sheep as well. And uh, I've talked to them and, and been around their ranches a bit. And, and so had a sense of that beyond that, it, it was, <laughs> it was really a sense of, of sort of imaginative, uh, thinking. I love how he walks in like it's a Denny's restaurant <laughs> <laughs> and just kind of assumes this place in your home briefly. Yeah. Right. Total which strainer. of course isn't big, you know, it's a, it's a herding trailer, which yeah. is, you know, the size of the old canned ham trailers. Right. Well, there's so much, uh, there's so many things driving the poem, like Mel or the taste of the bacon, the scent of the bacon and the bean, the hiss of the beans. So you, you're getting all of the senses at work in this, in this poem. I, I just think it's a fascinating piece. Thanks so much for reading it. I want to get back to, you know, your early years, I guess Christmas maybe was, we think of Christmas and childhood and so forth, but I'm wondering for you, Jeff, when, when did you, when was your first contact with poetry that you recall? Were you read poems as a child or did you find them in school or how did, how did your first occasion with poetry happen? You know, it's interesting, Frank. I, for years, I, I believed it was a certain way that it happened. And, and that, and what I'm going to say about that did actually happen. I was read to a lot as a, as a child. And I think that uh, many of us and probably everybody in this room has been read to quite a bit as a child and was, and, um, probably enjoys reading to children. Now, when you have a chance, it's a really, it's a wonderful experience to read to children and to look back on our own 
experiences. And I, in particular, had one book I loved. It was called Scuttle the Mouse. Uh, I, I still have it. it. You know, the pages are just like tearing away from the spine. Uh, it, I read that book with my mother a lot. Um, and I say I read it with her because I knew the story before I could read, of course, because she read it to me so much. I knew how the story went and it was about this little mouse and uh, there were there was a pirate ship that came and there were these these horrible sort of pirate rats around the wharf and Scuttle winds up uh, <clears throat> getting stuck on the pirate ship and winds up with some Spanish doubloons and such and and sort of he's a Robin Hood of sorts of little mice at the at the wharf. I loved that story, and and I really think that that story to me was my first entry into being totally hooked by the magic of of the dream, the fictional dream, the poetic dream, and and it was written in verse. Um, however, a few years ago, I realized that I think my first introduction to poetry was even before that, and it happened when I was outside, uh, outdoors with my grandfather. He uh, he took me fishing a lot. Of course, I grew up in San Leandro. He lived in Castro Valley, which was just over the hill, and and Lake Chabot is there, uh, and we would spend hours and hours and hours at the lake. And he had had a stroke that impaired his ability to speak. Uh, so for me, uh, as a youngster in the family learning how to speak at that time, I was three-ish when we would start going fishing and, and hanging out a lot. Uh, I didn't have much trouble understanding him. Mm-hmm. I was sort of his uh, his family translator in a way. When people didn't understand him, they'd ask me, what did he say? And I'd tell them. But when we were together, we didn't talk a whole lot. Uh, we spent a lot of time in silence together. Uh, and he would show me things. He'd show me how to tie knots or he'd point at things. And I have a, a very vivid memory of watching these ducks fly in toward this little cove we were fishing in. And they had come from the far end of the island. I had watched them come in from, uh, you know, up in the tree line and get lower and lower and lower and come toward us and eventually cup their wings, raise their breasts up, put their feet out, come to the, the sort of skid on the water and being absolutely amazed by it. Like it's magical uh, to watch. And I, I remember sort of stopping whatever I was doing and watching that. That's about the extent of the memory I have, except that it, it stayed with me and it's vivid. And I think I I point back to that memory as a memory that was me finding poetry in the world that young, not knowing it. I wasn't able to label it then. I wasn't able to define it as such. But I knew I had witnessed something that was magical and miraculous and beyond my own comprehension, which was also everything we did when we fished. You know, the the mystery of not being able to see under the surface of the water but but casting out some kind of bait in hopes of hooking a fish and the mystery of waiting and what was swimming under the surface. And that kind of, of beauty and mystery combined is really what poetry is about mm. and has long held with me about poetry. And, and so as a poet, I, I kind of hark back to that memory as a child in the sense of, of seeing that moment as... Um, a foundation point in my life of witnessing the grace and beauty of nature. And as a poet, of course, now trying to capture that same grace 
in the image, but through some sort of beauty and language. Well, you touched on a number of things I want to ask you about, but one of them um, would be at what point did you start to communicate that? Or at what point did you start to pick up the pen and, and uh, write a poem or have something to say that was more than just a letter or a, a note? I don't think I started communicating that in any sort of articulate written way until I was in college. I spent as much time as I could as I got older fishing. And when I was too young to fish on my own, I, you know, I, I would flood the gutter on, a, on an afternoon in the summer and put my army man in the gutter and pretend they were fishing, uh, make a river, you know, and put rocks in it and make little riffles and dam it up and make a pool at one spot. And I mean, it, it, it's a tremendous waste of water in the middle of a drought. Now I try to look back at that, at that thing, you know, as a kid and think, oh my God. But, uh, but, but it was a great, you know, it was a great way I, I was escaping, you know, I was building another reality that had to do with all of the reality that I love to be around. And 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 daydreaming about a non-urban reality in the middle of of the Bay Area in a in a city's gutter, um, I think. And and so there was a certain expression there of my love for water and and the outdoors and nature. It wasn't until um, until I was in college and I had uh, a poetry seminar uh, with Gary Thompson at Chico State. And, you know, Gary, I was writing a lot of silly little poems that, you know, I was having a hard time finding subject matter and, and such. And, uh, I remember him asking me one day, you know, what do you like to do? Like, what do you do for fun? What, cause you know, I, I don't get the poems, you know? And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't really get them either. Cause I was writing about people, you know, <laughs> who do you go to for this or that? And, um, I told him I liked to fish and I liked being outside and swimming in the canyon. And, and he said, just write about that, you know, just write about those things. And that I think was when I first started doing anything, expressing anything about, uh, about my love for the outdoors and, and really writing. I didn't really see myself much as a writer. You know, I went, I went to school to study biology. I went to college to study biology and washed out of that program that. and then wound up yeah. as an English major. Yeah. I can see that in the, in the work <laughs> it comes through. So I want, I want to zoom ahead a little bit to, uh, we know now a little bit about your, your love for the outdoors and fishing, but, uh, in a lot of your essays or some of your essays anyway, and quite a bit of your poetry work, you write about the experience of fishing and being outdoors but you also speak about the importance of, uh, I don't know if you'd call it rewarding yourself, but uh, the meal that comes after uh-huh. is a really important experience for you and the people around you. I know that you like to share uh, with your friends and family uh, the rewards of your adventures out in nature. And... Um, you said that sometimes that's even more important than the experience of fishing itself. And it better be occasionally. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, you know, I think uh, I grew up in a family that ate together, you know, and, and we were with we three kids in the family. And of course, as we all got older and had different things going on, you know, 
obviously somebody's going to baseball practice or this or that, you know, families scattered around doing, doing things. And somebody's, you know, one of our folks was running off to pick somebody up, but as much as we could, we, we ate together every night, at least dinner, um, uh, you know, breakfast and such on weekends. And that just stuck with me as something that you do as a family. Um, it, it, it was a time when we, uh, when we fought, it was a time when we laughed. It was a time when we shared things about our lives and our, our day. And, uh, and we also did it as a larger family for uh, special occasions, not only, uh, holidays like Thanksgiving and such, but, uh, somebody's birthday, uh, you might have, have friends over, but there was always another meal that was the entire family and extended family that would come and it would be a big meal. Uh, for somebody's birthday. And and I just always found gathering around a table as something that's important because it allows for us to have a kind of communion uh, with the people that we enjoy so much. Mm. And that food, food to me is one of those things that uh, helps us restore our lives. Uh, it has a, a, I think, a healing power to it. it there's a restorative health kind of power to it. And, and when we sit down at a table to commune over food, we tell stories and we, we share our pain and our tragedy in our lives. We share our triumphs and our joy. And, uh, I just, I think it's, I think it's something that in the culture of food in America and, and fast food and processed food, taking so much of a, a front seat, it's important to spend as much time at the tables as we can. Right, right. And there's there's a very important poem in your collection called Keeper. Um, if you will, turn to this dinner party. Uh, Absolutely. It's one of my favorites and speaks about including those friends. And you you better not leave the friends out of the poetry is what I found. <laughs> yeah. You know. And, you know, this, this actually, uh, this first line of the poem actually did happen. Um, these were friends that we had lots of dinner parties with. Uh, this couple, um, the, the gentleman of, of the couple, he was somebody that I fish with a lot. Uh, they now live in Salt Lake City, so we don't see each other much. But at the time, we lived just down the street from each other. And uh, he and I spent countless hours, uh, both bird hunting and, and, uh, fishing together. And his wife once said, how come I've never been in a poem? <laughs> this is called dinner party for my friend who complained one night at a dinner party. She had never been in a poem who noted that in my last book, even her dog appeared on page 33. <laughs> Maybe we should share more days hunting or fishing or drinking. Maybe we ought to bridle horses some fall afternoon and ride out through canyons. Ah, but who needs poems when so many nights over game hens in cherry sauce or chili verde, roasted lamb, pies, your voice paints this room. Your laugh rides up over the chinking of glasses and silver and glides long and smooth like chucker. Your listening falls across the table into the quiet of the lettuce, dancing over the edges of plates like skirts. The taut cheeks of your smile catch just above our hearts in whiskey or drambuie as the late end of night comes up against us. Held tight, we empty into the cold, scattering like birds, running out low beneath the moon to roosts, to our corners of dark, 
fed full and ready to rest. Mm. <laughs> Beautiful. There's some applause in the audience. <laughs> but you know, and, and just uh, as a note, their their uh, their first dog uh, that they had together was named Drambui. So <laughs> I had to get his, his name in this poem as yeah, well. Well, I love the, your conversation about uh, food and and your feelings about uh, food. The discussion of meals and uh, after the hunt or the fishing event. Uh, how important that is. And there's, you have an essay that um, I'd like us to look at sporting and leisure uh-huh. to quiver like a lamp, a lab to quiver like a lab. And I think if you would like to read, let's go to the winter, the winter afternoon there toward the yeah, end and, yeah. and read into the end of the essay. Right. Sure. Be happy to. The winter afternoon, I arrived home with an eight-pound steelhead. My wife's bottom jaw fell just a bit. It was truly a beautiful fish. It was a fine fish to catch, which I took on a Jackson flatback, a streamer pattern I created on the Feather River. That evening, we had over my brother and his wife and a teacher friend of mine and his wife, who was a doctor at the University Health Center. We roasted the fish whole with dill from the garden, hazelnuts chopped in half, and large slices of butter all inside the fish. Every ten minutes, I basted it with about an ounce of calvados. Alongside the fish, we had roasted potatoes with ground red Anaheim chilies, lemon and garlic, and a platter of sautéed asparagus. In the end, we drank three bottles of Chardonnay, two Chateau Montalena and a Clos Pegasse. For dessert, we had an almond tort with a meringue, We were living in the largest almond-growing region in North America, and we drank a bottle of Merceau. This was a meal remembered now eight years later. It was a restorative meal, one where we presided over the table for nearly four hours and held forth on the food and wine and on all topics of conversation. It was the first meeting of the other two couples, who still keep in contact even when my wife and I aren't around, and what better type of meal for first meetings than something to keep focused on the table and each other. I might also mention that nearly everything on the table was relatively local from within a 100-mile radius. This is a practice I try to abide by, to eat locally as much as possible. It helps us know where we are living at the ground level. At the end of the 19th century, existentialist philosophers held forth that spirituality was dying. At the end of the 20th century, it scares me to think that the meal is dead. But it seems a nightly gathering over tables, something to keep families together, to bring and keep friends together, is something slowly being pulled clawed by clawed from the banks of our lives. It's getting washed downstream, dissolving and landing on the bottom bottom in the muck. And if we can't enjoy some slow time over a table or some slow time preparing a meal for those near us, what can we enjoy? Leisure is about being in the moment without the preoccupation of a thousand appointments and disappointments we have on a regular basis. It is January in the Northwest. It's cold and the steelhead are running. It's the time of year to gather my daily life into my waders and vest and coat and be chilled. It's time to take along a large lunch, maybe a prime rib sandwich, some wine, some whiskey. 
As the snow fell yesterday, I quivered like a lab in late October, knowing the large flakes would hush the hiss of riffles, that a fly casting out could join the snow, fall on the river, and raise a fish to a cold window of water. Amazing. It's Thank an essay, you. but you, you, you hear the uh, the poetry in the essay, the, the assonance, the anaphora, occasionally appearing uh, in in Jeff Norris' work. And I, I want to ask you about you talk about this being, you know, the coming back from from the fishing adventure to the family, and and not just not just the experience with the family, but being out there on your own in waders and the water and the cold and the fog and all the the cranes that you witness and so forth. You, you, you talk about this as over and over again as being a restorative experience that you feel restored with all of this activity. Um, and maybe it's the reminder of, of a youth or a connection with nature, but I'd, I'd like to ask you what, what exactly is being restored? I mean, you are being restored, but what is it, what is it that can you go into that yeah. kind of what, I think for myself, and I'll, I'll speak about it personally, I, I suppose, but it's not to say that this experience for me isn't, I think, shared by a lot of people I know who engage in time outdoors. The stillness that I experience, um, and, and that's an internal stillness. It's not to say that, uh, you know, obviously at times fishing or, or bird hunting, you're, you're very still, but other times you're not, you're moving and walking and uh, hiking and, uh, you know, crossing rivers, wading through things. Um, but there's a focus and a, and a, and a very, uh, intent focus on what's happening in the moment that forces us to simply be where we are and, and to, to let the other things fall away. As I say in the essay, to let, let the thousand appointments and disappointments we experience in a day fall away because, you know, it, you're driving to the grocery store to go grocery shopping. And to me, that's just not restorative because for me, I'm thinking, okay, I've got to go there. And then I've got to stop by the post office on the way home. And, oh, this needs to happen. And that needs to happen. And I got to grade these papers by Thursday and do this or that. Uh, you know, I'll give you an example. Um, two years ago, my son and I were, were duck hunting. Uh, we had got out early, uh, set up a blind and hunted the, 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 the morning flight. Uh, so we've been out there since about four 30 or five in the morning and somewhere around noon in this, you know, this large clump of, of reeds we were in on this, this mud Island. Uh, he said, I'm, I'm tired. I'm going to take a nap. Now he's 17 and he takes his coat off and rolls it up and puts it down and, and, um, lays at my feet in the mud and he uh he said he wanted to sleep so i didn't talk to him he and he proceeded to talk to me for an hour with his eyes shut before he actually fell asleep i finally said i thought you were gonna take a nap right <laughs> you know but he was asking me questions like oh who should i take to this dance and you know uh and then he finally fell asleep <clears throat> and while he was asleep at my feet uh I have no idea how many ducks flew over us because I was just looking at them. And one of, one of the, my favorite things when he was a, a little boy was to watch him sleep. I used to just love that. He was 
so peaceful and angelic and and beautiful when he was sleeping. And so he was lying there at my feet and I was, I was really captivated in this moment of watching him at 17 now be at my feet sleeping. And I was just really riveted in that moment. And that kind of calm that it brought me, that kind of peace, that kind of deep internal connection with the core of my love for my son is, is restorative to me because it brings me an energy and a focus on my life and what's important and spiritually and intellectually and emotionally that, um, that helps me then come back to my daily life with a sense of peace and calm and, and clarity that I might not gain otherwise. This brings me to another thing I've noticed is you're talking about living in the moment and you just, you just talked about that sort of meditative for some people to, to get into a moment where you're, you're just being perhaps. And Julia Connor had a conversation with her where she said that she has to create a well of silence around her in order to begin her her writing process. Is this, is this sort of living in the moment also a part of your process of writing poetry? Are you also creating a moment for yourself when you sit down to write of blocking all else out, creating that stillness that's necessary in fishing or uh, in being in nature? Is Do you bring that also to the typewriter, the computer, uh, in order, the pen and paper to start writing? Is definitely. That, you know. <clears throat> definitely. I think, you know, Carving out that time, uh, initially for me, I do have to get the noise out of my head. So in my process, when I usually sit down to write, unless something has just uh, just been totally delivered to me and been you know driven into my head like a lightning bolt or something, other than that, uh, it it is very much a process of sitting down. I'll read first. I'll read somebody else's work. Get the noise out of my head. Uh, and slowly kind of drop into whatever feelings I'm, you know, whatever feelings I have going on, uh, wherever I am in that moment and just let it happen. And, and so the noise falls away. Eventually it's quiet. There is a certain kind of stillness and, uh, a stillness around me in my head, I think in my heart, that's where I'm moving. You know, things are, things are happening internally. But it's definitely getting away from uh, the the other things around me that that might be uh, causing a lot of noise in the day. Yeah, a well of silence. Um, yeah, that's I, I've heard Julia talk about that. Um, and and for me, I suppose I don't feel overly uh, silent as much as I do. Uh, uh, kind of active in my own little vacuum. Well, I want to move on to your more, most recent book. Um, and you had some praise for the book, The Third Body. It's much more about people. I think in the first works that they're about people as well, but you're very connected to nature. And we start to see sort of the family man come into it, the, the connection to family that has developed uh, in your life. And it just... Uh, some beautiful passages that that exist in this. I'm going to read something people have said about the third body. Marilyn Chin says, 
These are quiet yet intense poems celebrating family life, making the domestic universal, and yet, conversely, making external observations personal. And what could be more fresh than an American male voice in the new century singing stalwarty about happiness and love? I am totally captivated and convinced. Well, that was Marilyn Chen. And if you would, if you'd read the uh, morning swim poem. This, and, and just as a process, I'll just kind of bridge it back to the process question. Um, you know, this came actually from an assignment that I gave my creative writing class, which was to simply go home, look at the newspaper and uh, find uh, some article that piqued your interest a little bit. And I'm a, I'm a newspaper hound and I like to read the paper in the morning. And of course, in the first stanza that, that will, that will come out. Morning swim. This morning, a war across one ocean and a continent. Another city's pension fund has burned like tissue and 14 wild horses have been found shot in Nevada. The nerve. We are on a beach this morning facing the sun along Lake Tahoe. The umbrellas are showing up like flowers. After reading the paper, you decide to swim. So I join in this abundance of blue, but you are already ahead of me. I am so slow and watching you on your back, legs kicking above the water. Some distance has come now. Looking back at the dappled umbrellas, I am closer to them and land. Your back is to me, the skin I will swim for. You turn and are calling to me, I think, waving your arms, but I can hear only the murmuring crowd of the sand-hot beach. Your red and white striped suit and the old wood Chris Craft speeding along its white trail in the distance makes me think this could be the twenties. Have we learned nothing? What would have happened had we all married someone else? Your lips are still moving, and in a moment you'll keep swimming out. I think I hear your voice beckoning me. Your lips move in the sunlight, but it is real silence, a prayer for us all. Thank you. Uh-huh. There's so much happening in this poem. You have attachment and connection and disconnection. Um, you're viewing your wife, presumably, uh, you're with, and the Chris Craft uh, motorboat is coming by. You notice that it seems like the 20s, could be the 20s, and you hear all the people on the shore under their dappled umbrellas, or the dappled umbrellas, the collection of people. You hear them, but not your wife. So there's this, it's this fascinating moment of living, living in the moment, and being transported in time, sort of, um, you you seem to be able to transport time with your words here. How did how did you get to this state of creativity? Is it is it happening uh, while you're in the water? Did you did were you processing the poem during the event that this was? I I'm assuming this actually happened. Um, so did. Did you know a poem was on you at the time it was happening? No, I didn't actually. This this event happened. Uh, of course, it's a it, this this becomes a composite kind of poem as well. I'll say that. So the swim happens. 
later uh, swim in the afternoon. We were on the beach at one point in the morning uh, watching people show up with their umbrellas. Uh, the reading of the paper happened actually uh, a week later. That wasn't even part of the day. So the poem, and, and that was the impetus for the poem. Uh, you know, after this whole experience in Tahoe, I'm back in Sacramento. I'm having coffee one morning. I'm reading the paper. I read these articles. I'm disgusted by the news, uh, become sort of entirely pissed off about things that are happening in the world, uh, the, the war in Afghanistan and, and pension theft. And, and the, the, the kicker was these, these uh, 14 horses that were shot. Uh, they didn't know who shot them. And I just thought, what the hell is going on in our world? So, and I, I got up put the paper away uh, and got in the shower. And it was in the shower in this sort of moment of stillness and like symbolic cleansing almost, right? That the poems started churning away. Uh, and and I, I got out of the shower and dried off and sat down and started working on the poem. And um, that then was the look back to this whole moment of swimming and uh, and what that that whole sense of connection and disconnection, which seemed to be somewhere upon me that morning that I, that I really think came from reading those articles, the sense that, that we're so connected in the world and so connected in our lives. And yet we live among disconnection so regularly. And, and, um, and there, we seem to have a desire to make it better and have it be different. But, um, that question gets posed a little in the, in the poem when I say, what would have happened had we all married someone else? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what would have, have happened if our parents had married different people, if we married different people? I mean, we could think the world might be a hell of a lot better, but of course it could be a hell of a lot worse too. But, uh, you know, it, it's one of those, those sort of psychic questions or cosmic questions of what might happen if, if things were different. I love I know that there's another poem where you're talking about uh, your love. I, I believe that's what this is. I track us to into a third body. It's where the third body actually comes into the poem and the book. Mm -hmm. We know the way a hawk knows wind. I have given you a part of my heart for good. There is no finding, finding it again, except in your eyes, the way grass beneath an orchard tastes of apples. And I just, I, this is such a powerful piece. It's called Tracing the Banks of Rivers. And it, it tells me of some experience of loving for years and projecting more of that experience of love and affection. It's, I don't think there's an English word for this kind of, <laughs> it's, it's beyond devotion. It's a sort of permanent love, you know, a bond that's uh, that strong. Um, I just, I think that that's a fascinating uh, piece again, um, how you're able to do that. What, what we don't have in the English language, you've been able to put into a few lines. Well, thank you. Um, you know, I, 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 that poem, I think speaks to how I feel about love. And when people have asked me about uh, my obsessions in writing, and Alberto Rios, um, who teaches at Arizona State, is a is a friend, and um, we we got to talking about obsessions one night. And he teaches a class on writing your obsessions at Arizona State. And I realized in in talking about that 
that obsession topic that I really think I'm just obsessed with writing about love. And I'm not sure why. And, and in some way that's been with me since I was a kid. It could be that my grandfather died when I was young. He died when I was 11, the one that I spoke of earlier. We were very close. And uh, that was a great loss for me. It was a, it was a traumatic moment in my life when he died. And the loss, uh, I, I don't believe I ever lost his love. I just lost him. Mm. I know that now. I didn't know it then. I, I know there's a there's an essay and a poem that mentioned your grandfather, and one one talks about sort of seeing him. You know he's gone already, but you sort of see him or the idea of him. I, I don't think it's a hallucination. I think it's kind of a it was an a, imaginative. It was a mes- it was a moment of presence is mm-hmm. what it was, where I, I really felt that he was with me. And in, to invoke William Stafford, I was steelhead fishing on the Wilson River, oh. uh, up off the Wilson River Road. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and uh, I just felt his, uh, his this presence. immense presence that yeah. he was with me. And yeah. also there's there's a poem. I don't uh, I don't know if it's a poem or I think it's a poem where he hands you stones small stones, I think. Right. And, and, uh, they're supposed to represent a fly, a fly perhaps for fishing, right. A wrench and some other object. I thought that was a really fascinating piece. Do you know the poem? Yeah. The, um, you know, I don't know that I have it. Uh, I don't know that I have it with me. Um, but I, I do know the poem you're, you're speaking of. And, and when I wrote that, I, I, uh, I wanted to, um, to capture this sense that he is still with me oh. in so many ways. And, and those things, uh, he was a laborer, you know, he was a guy who, he was a brick Mason. Uh, he worked with tools. Uh, he, he represented to me in handing me these things, the sort of mysteries in my life that I was going to have to deal with. And some of those were physical and some of those aren't. Yeah. Well, I want to, let's try reading uh, one more poem that is very much about Family. After this poem, I maybe, if we have time, ask you a little bit about your uh, development uh, as a writer. How how aware you are of uh, sure that and so forth. I'll, I'll hand you this winter turkeys poem. I think it's from uh, Third, Third Body, Bodies yeah. as well. Winter turkeys. There have been thirty six turkeys in my life, each near Christmas. Two I have missed in 86 and 88, and also missed the death of my father's mother. That year in Vienna, I phoned from a bar serving schnitzel, then outside the pale evening as if a far-off fire heaved itself into the violet dusk. We eat well at these dinners, stuffings, mold berries, roasted turkey, many wines. Our mother is getting so she shakes a bit, lifting the black, fat-spitting roaster. Our father carves still with respectful movements to the bird, feeling its curves into neat slices of meat. This year, he might talk about the old Murray cabin up the road, but that's as passing as the morning quail. Instead, he's telling me of a cousin he hasn't seen since his mother's funeral, and this word hangs the F sticking on his lip like the clot of fat and blood he wipes from the knife. Later, I'll leave him alone, jacket and brandy, his half a snifter on the back deck. He'll look a long way off into the sky and find the railroad camps near Shasta, our sister's ballet debut. 
his first night with our mother cruising San Jose. They tail like glowing meteors over the ridge. In the morning, we'll walk shoulder to shoulder, quietly through new snow, as though the stars had fallen to ashes overnight. I love this poem. It reminds me somewhat of the Keats poem, Bright Star. It has a little different direction, of course, but relation of permanence or impermanence. You know, your father stuttering on the word funeral of, I believe it's, yeah, the cousin. And, uh, you know, we're, we're aware of our own limited time on this earth, but uh, we're also aware of the permanent impact we can make on each other it's, as you talk about the stars being such a permanent thing. I, d- I don't want to leave tonight without, I know you are working on some new, a new book and some new material. Yeah. And I just absolutely don't want to leave that uh, untouched. Okay. Uh, let's try to to work that in. You bet. But before we close, I think we'll close with a poem or two that you have that are new. But uh, what what projects have you done as poet laureate? Ask that um, so that people are kind of aware of what your work in the community. Number one, and and what events do you have coming up? Well, uh, as far as events coming up, uh, I have, uh, let's see, a reading with uh, Kate Ashey uh, at the Avid Reader on, I believe that's January 24th. So that's a ways out. A couple events coming up, uh, of course, before this airs, but uh, for the folks here, uh, on September 30th will be the dedication of uh, Poet Laureate Park, which should be a really wonderful uh, gathering and that's at the South Natomas Park uh, near the South Natomas Library. Uh, and Troy Corliss's work out there is just amazing. The sculptures and uh, so wonderful. You know, it's it's something that Julia Connor worked so hard uh, during her tenure as Poet Laureate to have. Uh, and really great that Sacramento has honored poetry in such a way. Um, also, the Art Jam on... Uh, Friday and Saturday, October 2nd and 3rd uh, is coming up, and uh, I'll be doing a kind of a cool thing there. Uh, this was Shelley Willis's idea, but to, uh, to build a poem by the uh, people who visit the Art Jam. So we're going to have like a living text poem that I'll just sort of manage, you know, as I'll start it with a couple lines, and then throughout the day, people will add to the poem, but by the end of the event, we'll have a, a, a large kind of living text poem that people have added to throughout the event, which should be really cool, and the Art Jam, of course, is going to be a great fundraiser for for arts in, in the Sacramento region. Uh, you know, being Poet Laureate in the county has really been an honor, I have to say, and and I was, I feel very honored and flattered to have been chosen to have the post, and uh, I'm still in it until uh, July of, of next year. It'll have been a total of four years. The work I've done with schools, uh, so I've worked with this last year, I worked quite a bit with uh, some fifth grade classes in Elk Grove, which was really wonderful. Uh, you know, regular readings and different talks, community events, uh, all sorts of different things over over the th- three years so far that have been uh a wonderful way to take poetry into the community, but also learn from the community as well in terms of what their desires are. Right now I'm working on a project that's going to take me out into the state as well with the uh, Environmental Justice Coalition for Water. 
and it's going to be a, a poetry and photography mixed uh, media process to uh, get the word out about the human right to clean drinking water. The EJCW advocates on on behalf of communities who are struggling with uh, clean drinking water. Excellent. Some of what's going well, on. Thank you yeah. so much for your hard work in the community. And I'm glad to hear you're here a while longer till July. Four years is a long uh, track. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it has a long experience. Yeah, but for it's, a been, it's been fantastic. And, and of course, yeah, time for someone else to, to step in and uh, bring some new energy to it as well. Yeah. All right. And so. really, have you not, the sculpture's already out there. And by the time this is aired, I don't know if the, the uh, dedication of the Poet Laureate Park will be um, done or not, but you definitely want to see Jeff Knorr's Continental Drift, I believe is the poem. That is, yeah. That is uh, not in the stone. It's, <laughs> it's in bronze, I think, yeah. or, or some heavy metal uh, yeah. that, that is going to last a very, very long time. Uh, so it is a beautiful new addition to South Natomas Park and to Sacramento. So get out there to the library and see that. So if you would, Jeff, would you close us with a, a poem, a new poem? I will. Uh, th- this this is a, a newer poem. It'll be in my next book, which will be out uh, in about a year or so. Uh, and the, the title of that book is The Color of a New Country. Uh, this, you know, I mentioned earlier uh, in passing about writing about people in uh, that that undergraduate writing workshop. And I was writing poems about people in my family and such. And uh, we had an assignment to write about somebody who influenced us. And you also mentioned earlier about, especially in the third body, uh, writing about more people in the family, people who I love and I'm close to. And I think in this new book, the newer poems are looking out at the world a little bit more uh, there's a there's a external view that's happening in these poems that's a little different. And this poem was about a, a guy. Uh, I finally, you know, it took me. I thought about this guy when Gary asked us to write about somebody who influenced us in, in our childhood, but I didn't know how to write it then. So almost 25 years later, this poem came out uh, about a guy who lived on our street who was just legendary. I mean, he was something else. This guy. Uh, and I won't I won't go into that much given our our time constraints right now. Uh, but this is called taps, and uh, you know you could hear him tapping down the street every day, and so you knew when this guy was walking by. Taps. The drunk down the street wore taps on his black boots, and each afternoon tapped a rhythmic slide and click step, cool like he was Gene Kelly. Aviator glasses, pressed blue jeans, VFW cap creased at the crown. The bill curved with the horizon's slight arc, like at the Bay of Da Nang, where he must have hoped a hundred times to head home. How many ghosts did he put away each day down at poor Joe's? How many missions did he fly into the haze of gin? Rumor had it he was a door gunner. And we boys all made cracks, doorbell ditched his house, leaping bushes, scattering invisible when he barked like a stray dog. Mostly, we were scared of him, his mumbling at us as he stumbled along the sidewalk while we played two-hand touch, our glory still ahead of us in the air alive as rain. 
But the day the silver mortician's van parked in his driveway, we all hoped it was his wife. Finally, when the sheeted body was gurneyed out, the van left us huddled in the street in silence as if church had just finished. We stood, all of us making plans, listening to her wailing, the cries drifting into the street, then yelling, then plates smashing until it was dark and a jet passed over us. Dark except for a streetlight and quiet except for my brother tacking flattened bottle caps to the toes of his kids. Wow. Let's give Jeff Nora a round of applause. Thank you, Jeff. We've really enjoyed having you here today. I appreciate your time and your effort and all you're doing for Sacramento. Thank you so much, Frank. It's really been a pleasure to be here with you. And uh, thanks for having me. Thanks to Ensa for the, the show and producing this and everybody who came out today. All right. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming to Coffee and Poets. We hope to see you next time at edition 23. All right. Thank you. Thank you.